0: With me to james me share a little bit tonight i'm still in chapter one I just kind of keep working my way back and forth through the book uh, i kept coming back uh, to verse 18 is really central all of them are central obviously their scripture but uh, to the context in 18 where he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth uh, this phrase by the word of truth uh, so that we we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Uh, I'll just continue reading there to the end of the chapter. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But he who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the reason I read all of that is I'm struck by how often he mentions ideas around that word of truth. In fact, when he says, I've already shared that when he says be quick to hear, I think primarily he means that. He means that word of truth. I made, I extended that application in more practical ways in regards to, uh, in times of trial, uh, I, I share that we, I think we can intensify our suffering in the trial by being quick to speak and not quick to hear. Uh, so we need to be quick to hear. Obviously the word of God is involved in there, uh, in that hearing, we need to be hearing that. So I just wanted to uh, share a few few thoughts through these verses in regards to that uh, the word of God I think he means centrally here the gospel he says later on that the word implanted which can save your soul so I think he means the gospel uh, in the essence of the gospel the, the the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ but I think you can certainly make application to the revealed word of God uh, it is essential in times of trial In fact, I think that's what he means when he says you are brought forth. Uh, I think he certainly means out of death into life through the instrument of the word of God. Uh, I think it could even mean you're brought forth to trials and manifested as having been brought from death unto life. Uh, The word of God Working in your life throughout trials identifies you or sets you apart uh, as having been brought from death unto life through the gospel. So the word of God uh, essentially is the gospel, but it expands out into the all the revealed word of God, the truth of God, the scriptures, if you will. So in verse 18, as I've already quoted there, it is really the word of God is the instrument of our new birth. In verse 18, again, he says, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of first fruits among his creatures. So central to our being born again is the word of God. so if it's, if it's central to that, there's no reason to think it won't be central to everything else we do in life as well. He's going to go on uh, to mention several applications or or several references to the centrality of the word in the context of their trials. So at the very heart of its essential nature is that through that instrument we were brought to new life. We were born again. So it's absolutely central to that. Uh, I've often thought about how uh, Christian ministry can devolve into charitable organizations and, and start leaving off the Word of God. Uh, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's wonderful to meet needs. As I, we mentioned the garden, it's a, it'll be a great opportunity through fresh produce to meet needs for folks here and folks in the community as well. But if we leave off the Word, we're leaving off the central thing that, brings, that God uses to bring about the new birth. You can enter into hell with a good diet. Uh, a diet will not save you from eternal condemnation. The only instrument God uses there is the word of God. So it's absolutely central to our new birth. In verse 18 as well, it is the instrument through which his people are set apart. He says, we were brought forth. We were brought forth from, uh, from by his will uh, to be the first fruits among his creatures. And so, in some ways, the the central nature of the Word of God in bringing us to new life is also the same Word which we adhere to and embrace and have been trans or being transformed by that identifies us as different from the world. In fact, especially in the context of trials, uh, when we endure trials especially as he commanded it first here, counting it all joy, something that distinguishes us from how the world endures trials as well. They don't endure trials that way. They complain and they resist and they push back and they take up arms if need be to eliminate the trials that they're in. They they do all sorts of things, but the Christian is enduring those things and actually looks like they are thriving in the midst of them. And the instrument of that setting us apart in those trials is the Word of God. One of the things that has been striking to me throughout my Christian Christian life is is how. How often you see the Word of God just minimized to some basic instructions for life. They're, they're principles that someone has ascribed to as beneficial to having a happy and successful life. And there's no, there's no living Word that's transforming them within it's not making them different, it's, it's utilizing some Christian principles that seem to make their life a little easier or more successful. Well, you know the problem with that. It's when culture doesn't like what the Christian principles produce in a life and it shines light into the culture and if that's all you have as, a, as the word driving you, you will quickly abandon that because your primary goal is a comfortable life. You just happen to have concluded that Christian principles were the best way to have that. and That's not the kind of activity he's talking about here in the word. These people were set apart they were brought forth through the trials and distinguished from all the others around them going through trials by, their, by the word of God and its effect in their lives. So we have the word of God as central to our new birth. We have the word of God as instrumental in distinguish, distinguishing us from the world. In verse 19, it is the, uh, the word of God or it is also the truth <clears throat> to which we must be attentive. I've already covered this to some degree, but to go back over it, he says there, be quick to hear. I do think his primary thinking here is in regards to that word of truth, even if it expands outwardly to that in practical situations. But that's the thing that we must be most attentive to in trials. And by attentive, I don't simply mean just reading it. I mean mean subjecting ourselves to it as our highest authority. And this is a challenge sometimes because sometimes our instincts, our emotions are, practically speaking, our highest motivation, our highest authority. We act as we feel we ought to act. When he says here, be quick to, quick to hear, and he's referring to the, to the word of God here, the truth of God, I think he also un- means for us to understand that that, being attentive to that as the highest authority for how we ought to behave. And that means my emotions and my feelings and my instincts all are to be subject to the truth, the word of truth, and then I can define those, define and act upon those instincts according to truth, and not not divert the truth to fit the instinct. And that's what we so often see. We are emotional creatures. I'm not suggesting that you become a stoic or that you deny that you have feelings. What I think he's saying here by being quick to hear is is being attentive to the word, sensitive to the word and what it would say to you in regards to the emotions you're feeling. Are they proper emotions first and foremost? And if they are in line with the truth of God, what is my response to them? What acts should they provoke me to that are consistent with the word of God? Or should I act? Or should I simply endure the suffering that I'm going through at the moment for the glory of God? I mean, we're to be attentive to that word as the guiding practice or the highest authority in our lives. And that's not always easy to do. And that's certainly challenging to do, especially in times of trial when we're being affected by circumstances that are compelling us to be instinctively wanting to escape that for some reason. We're not likely to sit quietly and endure that, but when the word is our authority. So we're to be most attentive to the word. In verse 19 as well, it is the truth, which is to guide and temper speech and emotions. And so that ties into being attentive to the, to the word, but having been attentive to that word, having been subject to it, having, having concentrated and meditated upon what it teaches, it is then to become the guide to what we speak. We're to be slow to speak, but it doesn't say we're not to speak. But if we do speak after having been attentive to the word, then the word should be guiding or determining how we speak, speak truth. I have to confess today, but I was trying to rest a little bit and get my brain in gear for tonight, and uh, I, th- I thought it was three, hopes it was only two, but every time I would kind of doze and rest a minute, it startled me awake. I look up, somebody's at the door wanting to sell something. I opened the door, listened patiently. One guy just said, I don't think we're interested, thank you anyway, and I shut the door, and he kept talking to the, through, the, through the storm door, and I just... Kept looking at him, not trying to politely say, "Look, I'm not interested." And finally, he got the point, walks away. I sit back down and kind of nod off a little bit more. Door does it again. I look up and there's another guy. It looks like he's dressed the same. I thought it was the same company, but it was a different company. And he started telling that. I thought it was the third time. And I said, "Man, you guys are hard at it today." I said, "This is the third time y'all have disturbed me, and I'm not interested." And so I wasn't thoughtful about how careful I spoke. Hope even reminded me when he left. She said, "I doubt that was a Christian response." And so I was speaking out of instinct. I wasn't attentive to the word. I wasn't deliberating in regards to how I should respond to this frustrating set of circumstances. "You're irritating me, brother, out of the, out of my yard." That was my impulse. So when he says attentive to the word and be be quick to hear, I think the implication is in the quickness and attentiveness to the word of God, then the word of God begins to govern the way that I speak. Even though I might have been feeling that frustration, had I been not quick to speak and quick to hear, I might have let the word of God guide my interaction with this man. And who knows, could have even made it a gospel opportunity. I'll listen to your spiel if you'll listen to mine afterwards. I doubt he would have had time for that. So, so the word of being attentive to the word, it is the word as well that guides our speech. James goes later on verse chapter three, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a, he is a, perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. So, so he's going to get into that later on. He touches on it in the end of this chapter as well. So, so attentive hearing, subjecting ourselves to the authority of the word of God, that, that lends itself towards shaping the way that we speak. And I think as well, it also governs the emotions that we feel. It may, it may not mean that we don't feel frustration But it certainly brings to bear the word of God in regards to how we process that frustration or how we act or refuse to act upon that frustration. So the word of God is, I'm getting it, is central to that. Not just the reading of it and the hearing of it, but the meditating upon it, the attentiveness to it, and the willingness to to yield to that as a higher authority than how we're feeling in the moment begins to affect the way we speak in those moments and even the way we feel or how we act upon the feelings we have sometimes like today for me my frustration is something i should have repented of i should have repent i should be i should repent of being frustrated because of that interruption i could have very well seen that in a very different light so so we're all in this process, but it's attentiveness to the word, holding it in as a higher authority than my feelings or my momentary impulses, letting it guide the way and the words that I choose to speak and even how I respond to the emotions or the feelings that are, are, are stimulated by circumstances. The truth, the word of truth is central to that. In verse 21, also it is the truth which is to be implanted. That's an interesting, an interesting way of thinking about it. I thought about this. It's an implant is something that's not natural to us. Uh, I think of it in terms of something that's put inside us, a pacemaker. It's something alien to us, but having been joined or or put into us becomes beneficial to us. So I draw from that this word of truth is not originating or natural in us. It is something outside of us that has to be put into us and implanted into us, and and having been implanted, bears its fruit in us. Uh, I've, I've always, this has been helpful for me, especially when I'm disagreeing with people, is that if both people acknowledge that there is an objective truth to be pursued, It is not originating with me or with you. It is outside of us. So let's, as fallible men, get together, open the word of God and pursue what that truth is. Come to an understanding of what that truth is. It helps me not to be prideful if somebody disagrees with me. And it helps me not to to be hurt if they disagree with me. Because... The the ultimate object here is to pursue and to understand the truth. It may be that they've come to understand that and they can share that with you and they can sanctify you and it may go against you. But if it's if it originates in you and it's your possession, then if they disagree with you, they're not they're not they're attacking you. And so you're naturally going to be defensive. So the truth is this truth of God, the word of the truth implanted. It is God by his grace in his presence through the holy spirit and through the revealed word implanting that truth in us you heard me say this the other day and i say it a lot but the word the word has to has to be effectual in in us It can't just be words we read on a page and come to some intellectual understanding. It is an embracing of the word and implanting of the word that gets the word in our system. And then it begins to produce fruit and transformation in our lives. Be ye transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. And so it is the word of God and the spirit of God implanted in us that begins to transform us. We don't just know the word intellectually or conceptually. The word becomes in us a living thing and begins to produce in us fruit. And I think that's what he means here. The word, therefore, putting aside all these things, let the word or receive the word implanted. Notice he uses the word humility there. And I think that's where the, that's, that's the advantage in some ways of the trial is that it brings us to the end of ourselves and we're exhausted of ourselves of finding relief there and we're wide open then or we're more open for the word now to be implanted and take that sort of effect in our lives. So he says receive the word implanted. It makes all the difference in our lives. I was talking to someone this week you know, via text and they made a profession of faith, showed some initial fruit, but then drifted away and have been away for quite some time. And thankfully, we've just been praying for them. And at a certain point, I just realized that unfortunately, they're going to have to experience some of the consequences of the life they're leading before they ever come to any realization of what the truth that they proclaimed or declared they believed in really is. And I'm so thankful that this week I got a text and they were inquiring because in regards to coming back to Christ. They, they had seen enough of that world and they, they were frightened by the direction their life was taking. They want to come back to Christ and they're into the word. And, and so I was trying to give them some counsel of how to do that. Well, that's the word implanted. Now they're reading passages and sending me texts. What does this mean? I, I don't understand this. I, they started in Genesis Maybe not the book I would recommend as the first book, but that's where they started, so that's where we're working. Get the garden, get a hold of that, get a grasp on that fall and the, and the remedies for that fall. It's all there, so, so dig in there. And I love it because the Word is being implanted, and, and every day they grasp some great truth, and immediately it takes shape. It takes shape in their lives. They, they look at things differently. They view the world they're living in. They even look at their past lifestyle and the sinfulness and it becomes even more disgusting to them than it was. They, they, they're repulsed by, by how I could have ever lived that way. The truth is implanted and it's, now it's starting to bear fruit in their lives. And creating them, them a distaste for the sinful life they once embraced and enjoyed it was tasteful to them then. It's what I think he means here by this word of truth is implanted in us. It's not just to be something memorized. It's to be something transformational that is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, as the scriptures say, and is transforming our lives. It's profitable, as Paul says to Timothy. So it is the truth implanted. It's the word of truth also in verse 21 that, that identifies the old man or stay, contrast with him. Verse 21, before he says that about the word, he says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word. And that's the instrumentality of the word is what identifies that wickedness and what remains of that wickedness and all the filthiness of the old man. So in very real way, it is the instrument of the word of God that causes us to identify the old man and his nature, what drives him. What, how he's selfishly motivated for his own pleasure and his comfort. How hedonistic he is in in regards to the worldly things that he's satisfied his appetites with. It is the word of truth implanted that identifies those things as sinful. So the so it so it's instrumental as it were in our sanctification, in our putting to death the old man. I don't want to put to death the new things. <laughs> I don't want to put to death or quench a a newfound desire in the new birth for the word of God. I don't want to, I don't want to lose my hunger. I don't want to, I don't want to lose that desire to live more holy and, and more righteously. I don't want to lose that desire to let the word guide me in my conversations and in my thinking. I don't want to, I don't want to kill those things. I want to encourage those things. But I, but when the other, the old man comes up against that, I want something to be able to put him to death with. And that is the word of truth. I want to bring him into a confrontation as it were with the word of truth. Then ultimately I want to wind up at the cross where that old man is crucified. So it is the word of truth that identifies for us the old man. Verse 22, it is the word of truth upon which we are to act. This is getting into the newer part that we haven't touched on, but he says in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. He adds to that who delude themselves. So to hear the word and not to act upon the word is a self-delusion. And he kind of describes that. I was thinking today a lot about what is it for the professing Christian who reads the Word, does their devotional, studies the Scripture, what is it that's missing between the hearing of it and the doing of it? It's like there's a bridge here and there's a center section out. When I was out in Coronado, California, uh, my understanding, I don't know this as a fact, but my understanding was that the Coronado Bridge uh, was set uh, to where they could, uh, if it was to be bombed, they could float the center section out and keep the harbor open for the ships to come in and out. So so it was designed specifically uh, to be removed if need be. And I thought about what that Coronado Bridge would look like without that center section in it. You just have two sides going up and then there's a whole bay underneath and nothing connecting it. And that's the imagery I had in my mind. There's a hearing and there's the doing and they're on each side of the bridge. What is it that causes that center section to be missing in a Christian's life? What is that? I thought about a lot of things, fear, uh, anxiety, intimidation, I, I made out a whole list of reasons why we would hear, so, hear the word and then be reluctant or disobedient to it uh, on the other end. What's, what's, what's creating this gap between the hearing and the doing? It, it, it's a whole list of things, but I kind of boiled those down to one, and it is simply unbelief. Uh, you remember the, one, the, the, the man who Jesus was going to come and minister to him, and he said, Do you believe I can do this? And the man said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so the guy's recognizing that I believe with all that I am, but there's something in me that that recognizes that I'm not believing. So I, I need your help for the unbelief. I'm believing up to this point, but I see a gap here and I can't cross this gap. Help thou my unbelief. And it seems to me that the link that's missing Or the thing that's missing between the hearing and the doing of the word is belief. Belief. I thought about all sorts of examples. I hear that a combustion engine will turn gears and make a transmission and a rear end turn in a car. And so I act upon that belief by getting in my car, which I believe will take me down the road. I believe in principles of engineering and so I live my whole life acting upon those things you get in a car and you believe all sorts of things you we act on everything that we believe in mostly right I mean if we believe in something we shape our lives and we conduct our lives according to the thing that we believe in fact we get in a lot of trouble if we believe something that's not true and we conduct our lives and then only to find out that it's not true I told the kids a story. Some of you remember Shirley Eller, but she was raised, born and raised in Ashe County. And she was just, she was a country girl. And her and her sisters and brothers played on the mountainside and they, they threw rocks and threw sticks and they were just as rough as they could be. And she became convinced by watching the chickens that if she could flap her arms fast enough, she could fly. And of course, her sisters and brothers being <coughs> facetious as they were encouraged that belief. I think you might be right, Shirley. So Shirley shared the story of one day on the side of the mountain, they had an old spring house and she made her way up onto the roof of the spring house and she stood on the peak of that spring house, flapped her arms as hard as she could and she jumped. And when she tells the story, it's, it's hilarious because she says, you know something, I didn't even slow down. I hit the ground head first and rolled down the halfway down the mountain. She believed something that wasn't true, though she acted upon what she believed. Whether or not it was true had everything to do with whether or not the act was successful. And it wasn't because it wasn't true. Everything we do, we do because we believe something. And I think what we don't believe in the, in the gap between the hearing and the doing is we don't believe God that the doing of it will tend towards our, our good. Or our joy or our comfort he makes promises in regards to obedience we hear the promises but we don't believe that what he will provide is as valuable to us as what we find in our disobedience whether it be our comfort from not sharing the gospel whether it be our comfort from not being disturbed by gathering with the body of Christ whatever it is that he promises through his word it's a matter of whether or not we believe that word and if we believe that my present situation has more comfort and pleasure and joy to offer than what God offers. We don't do the thing that he says simply because we've determined that it is, that his promise is a lie, that his promise is not, is not true, that there isn't a greater joy in obedience than there is in staying where I am. And that's, that's a stunning thing to think about. Because if you think about in your life, every act of disobedience to what you know to be the word of God is a decision that in that instance, whatever that occasion, in that moment, you find the pleasures of this world to be more fulfilling and sufficient than the joys promised to those who would follow God fully. And that's just down to the heart of the matter. And that's a heart issue And I think for the believer, especially those under trial, there are going to be a lot of things in regards to the word of truth that would be governing their behavior. And the danger of acting upon that in an environment where they're already uh, uh, anger or, or frustration toward you might actually intensify your suffering. And in that moment, you're going to have to believe that obedience to God in its ultimate sense, even if it brings to death, brings a higher and greater joy than this life and temporary comfort can bring. It is belief that causes us to do the thing and not just be hearers of that thing. And it boils down to belief. And these people in circumstances where they were in areas where there was a, they were a minority and might actually suffer for practicing their faith faithfully. That was a real question. And his exhortation here is don't be merely hearers of the word and not doers. To do that, as I said in verse 22, is self-delusion. Self-delusion. You're not sanctified you are sanctified, but you are not transformed just by the hearing of the word. It's through the hearing of the word, and it produces the doing of the word. That's all the part of the trans- transition or the transformation. Hearing the word sets in motion an obedience, and through that hearing and obedience, we are being transformed. In verse 23, he gives an interesting Uh, analogy here for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he has looked at himself and gone away he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was I I just thought about you look in the mirror you go to great lengths uh, get yourself all squared away for some special encounter, maybe a business meeting of some kind, you're you're making yourself presentable, you look in the mirror and you finally, you finally gain your own approval, okay? That's good, I look look sharp, I'm ready to go. And you go out the door and you you don't have a clue what you just saw. In your mind, your hair could be all different directions, you could have breakfast on your face and grits on your corner of your mouth, you could have egg running down your chin, you forgot, what you look like, you don't have a clue. When you walk away from the mirror, when you go into the presence of someone else, what they're going to see. You you did have a moment. You had a glimpse of what you, they would see when they saw you. But as soon as you walked away, you don't have any idea what they're going to see because you forgot what you looked like when you looked in the mirror. I thought about it as well, looking in the mirror. Sometimes we're not satisfied. Some, sometimes we're dissatisfied with things. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's our physical condition. Maybe it's maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something we look in the mirror and we resolve to ourselves. I'm going to change that. I'm not. I'm not going to deal with. I'm going to. I'm going to work on that one. And then you're resolved, looking in the mirror. I, I'm not coming back to this mirror and seeing that same thing. I'm going to take care of this, whatever that be—exercise or a haircut or a shave or whatever it is. But then you walked away. You forgot about it and you went right on looking like you did that you disapproved of as you looked in the mirror. In fact, if you come back to the mirror tomorrow, you're going to be just as frustrated because you look exactly like you did the day before. Why? Because when you walked away from the thing that was reflecting you, you forgot what you saw in the reflection and you forgot your resolve in either direction. And to me, that's what I think he's saying here. To hear the word is to be brought face to face with the reflection of ourselves. It, it evaluates us. It puts us, it juxtaposes what we're seeing in the mirror according to the truth. And we see the flaws. And maybe we even see some, some success as a Christian. But then when we walk away and we don't obey the word, we forget the successes which would be encouraging or the flaws which would be motivating to yield further to the word of God and to Christ. We walk away from that completely oblivious to what the word revealed about us. And that's a, that's a strange thing. I mean, that is not an effective use of the word. In fact, he gives us the alternative. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, I think he's making a contrast for these Jews who had dispersed in many ways. and They they looked at the law in a certain way, but he's saying beyond that, looking into the law of liberty. I think that involves grace and coming to Christ and Christ's death for sin and and fulfilling of the law, the perfect fulfilling of the law. Looking into that perfect law of, of liberty... And abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man, he says, in contrast to the other, will be blessed in what he does. So that's that's looking into the mirror, as it were, of Christ, of the word of God. Certainly the word of truth, but also in Christ in this new relationship, not in the law as it was in the old days, but looking at the law in a very new way. We've had discussions with many of you through the years in regards to the Christian's use of the law. Certainly one of those is to instruct us in regards to the, what the holiness of God looks like. And it instructs us in so many ways as to how we conform our lives to that as well. So we're not looking at the law and finding condemnation there. We're looking at the law and finding sanctification through that law. But we're looking at that law in a different way through the law of liberty, the law of Christ. If we look into that mirror and we don't become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, then we will be blessed in what we do, he says. Verse 21 or 26, I think the word again governing the speech, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Again, he's going back, I think, to the beginning there, the quick speaking. Any man not attentive to the word, any man who's not quick to hear and slow to speak, that man that ignores the word of truth and just just. Releases his tongue in his ignorance and in his fallenness and remaining wickedness and filthiness. That man's religion is worthless. He's not doing the word. He's not even hearing the word. And now his tongue is loose and he's manifest himself as really a hypocrite. He may may listen to the word. He may listen to a sermon. He may read, read his Bible. But he's unrestrained in his tongue. And so he lets loose his tongue. That man's religious religion is absolutely worthless. In contrast to this man in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, You absolutely, that's practical. I think he can mean literally widows and orphans in their context, but I think larger It is is involved in carrying out service, ministry to others. In fact, in my notes, I wrote out beside my notes here, that the true heart of religion is compassion and consecration because it goes on to say, this is true religion, pure and undefiled. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, that's compassion, service, holding others greater than ourselves and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's the consecration. It's very similar to Jesus' words. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's pure and undefiled religion. This man who says he's religious but doesn't have attentive to the word, does not yield to the word, is not being shaped by the word, but looses his tongue and does none of these things. This man's religion is worthless. It is not serving him or anybody else. As I said with the garden a moment ago, to fill someone's belly and not give them the word of truth is not to help them maybe temporarily fill their bellies, but it doesn't help them in the long run. That kind of religion that does not act upon the word is worthless to you and to others. But the man who experiences this compassion and this consecration This is pure and undefiled religion. So James gives us a lot to think about in those passages, and then he's going to introduce in chapter 2 this sin of favoritism and partiality. So thank you for being here tonight. Stand with me and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for this day, for your word. Lord, I thank you for the word implanted. Uh, It is not a truth that I would have or any man would have come to by our own wits, even if we would have come to some understandings of peripheral things, we would have not gotten to the heart of truth. And Jesus says that I am the way, the truth and the life. So we thank you for this truth in Christ and this word implanted within us that transforms and shapes us. Father, I pray that we would yield to that in our lives. Everyone in this room, we we know the word. We know the scriptures, Father, we're not We're not novices at the Bible. In most cases, Father, we we know what the Bible says, but I think we could all look in our lives and see that there are sometimes gaps between what we know it says we ought to be doing and what we are doing. And Lord, I pray that you might help us to understand that at root of that is our unbelief. Uh, we We believe the lie rather than the truth. And we seek after our own temporal comfort in those moments, Father turn us from that course if we're on it and Lord lead us more fully to you bless those who've come tonight father watch over us as we go about our ways this week father we pray that you would grant guidance and wisdom in every circumstance in every situation we ask these things in Christ's name amen